Grab those Bibles. John chapter 4 is where we're going to be again this week. Um, if you were here last week with us, um, we're gonna, this is going to kind of be a continuation from what we looked at last week in our study. Um, we looked at Jesus' ministry, his first ministry in Samaria. Um, if you were here last week, you remember we looked at an encounter between Jesus and this uh, Samaritan woman, this woman at the well. Uh, what we said last week was that Jesus was so dead set on reaching out to this woman and preaching truth and grace to this woman that he broke every social barrier of the day. Um, he, he, he broke the racial barrier. Remember, Jesus is a Jew. Jews and Samaritans did not like each other. Jews saw the Samaritans as racially inferior and ungodly heretics. They were racially inferior because they had intermarried with all of the foreign nations that had come into that area hundreds of years earlier. And they were ungodly heretics because they, those foreign people that had come in, they not only began marrying with them, they actually began to adopt their false pagan gods and even, be, even began to like, sacrifice their children to these idols. Okay, they they kind of created this weird hybrid religion. So Jews saw the Samaritans as heretics. Heretics. Uh, Jesus not only broke the racial barrier, he broke the gender barrier. As we said last week, uh, it was not okay in that day, it was not considered okay in that day for a Jewish man to speak to a Jewish, to speak to a woman, period. For a, a man to speak to a woman, it was looked down upon. Um, it, especially the type of conversation that Jesus had. Jesus got into this long theological conversation with this woman, and that, was, that just did not happen, especially from a rabbi like Jesus. There's an old rabbinical precept in that day that said, uh, each time that a man prolongs converse with a woman, he causes evil to himself. No amens to that. All right? <laughs> each, time that a, <laughs> each time that a man prolongs converse with a woman, he causes evil to himself, and he desists from the law, and in the end inherits Gehenna, which is like hell. Okay, if you talk too long to a woman, you're causing evil to yourself, and you're in danger of hell. Okay, that, that was the rabbinic. That wasn't a biblical precept. That was a rabbinical precept. There's a difference. Okay, don't get it twisted. All right, so Jesus broke the racial barrier. He broke the gender barrier of his day. And he, uh, he went, took it a separate. He actually broke the moral barrier because this was not just any average woman. She was the pariah of the town. This woman that Jesus talked to was sexually promiscuous. She was the adulterous woman known around town for having had five husbands. Which, by the way, small town, five husbands. I don't know how you get five husbands. She had five husbands, and the guy she was shacking up with now was not her husband. She was known around town for, for marrying a bunch of different guys and sleeping with men that wasn't her husband. Okay? Uh, Jesus breaks all of that. Uh, he breaks the, gender, the racial barrier, the gender barrier, and the moral uh, barrier. We know this about the, this woman, that she came out and that she was an outcast from society because she came out alone to the well that day in the, in, in the middle of the day, noon. It's the sixth hour of the day, the Bible says. It's noon. And she comes out and she gets water not from the wells inside of town, in the town of Sychar where she lived. She walked almost a mile outside of town to get water. So it wasn't just that she was at the hottest time of day. She was really thirsty. Like, well, I don't care if it's noon. I got to get some water. She went to the outskirts of town to get that by herself. That didn't happen. And the reason, again, that she did that was she knew that if she went at any other time of the day to get the water that she needed to cook and to drink and to bathe and so on, she was going to have to come into contact with other women and hear their smart comments and look at their judgmental glances. She was not going to be around the other women. So she went by herself. She was living in shame. However, instead of coming into contact with the women, who did she come into contact with? Jesus. Jesus. Jesus was sitting alone at the well, 
Jesus, the Bible tells us, had sent his disciples off into the town of Sychar to go and buy some food for lunch, and he hung back to rest. They had been journeying. He hung back to rest, and he sends the rest of his disciples into the town. And this woman shows up, sees this Jewish man sitting up against the well. Uh, she comes in to do her stuff. She, she begins to lower the bucket into the well, and then Jesus tells this woman, he said, excuse me, ma'am, could I get a drink? Mind if I, you mind if I get a drink of that? And then she looks at the Bible, says, surprised, and says, how are you, a Jew, talking to me, a Samaritan woman? And he, th- he says, you, you think that's surprising? No, no, what's really surprising is that you're not asking for living water from me. If you knew who I was and you knew what I had to offer, the surprising thing is that you're not asking for something from me. And she, th- you know, obviously thinking to herself, okay, this guy's wacko because he's got no bucket. He's got nothing to get water from. This the only water in sight is this well right here. What's he talking about? And, and Jesus says to her, uh, he says, if you keep drinking this well water, you're going to have to keep coming back here day after day after day after day. But if you come to me, I will put in you a spring of water that will well up to eternal life and you will never be thirsty again. Last, last week we talked about the difference between a well and a spring, right? What we said last week was that a well is dependent upon its external environment. A well is dependent upon its external circumstances. A well is filled with rainwater. As long as there's sufficient rain, there will be enough water to enjoy and to survive, right? But what happens during a drought? The well dries up. What happens when your enemy comes and takes a bunch of dirt and fills in your well? And then somebody comes along behind him and then builds on top of that well. What's happened? Your well has dried up. It's been covered. It's been lost. It's been forgotten. Okay? A well is temporary. It's, ba- it's dependent upon its external circumstances. But what is a spring? What's a spring? Because he's, he's, he's changing metaphors here. What's a spring? A spring comes up from under the ground. It doesn't matter what's ha- happening, on, uh, happening around it. It doesn't matter if there's a drought out, out above it. It doesn't matter if you know, your enemy comes and throws junk on top of that spring or it puts dirt on top of it or even builds on top of that spring. Because what's going to happen? The spring will come bubbling up. It will come bubbling up from the dirt. It will come up above that junk. It will get rid of that foundation. Your house is going to fall down. You cannot stop a well. It will persist. It is powerful. You cannot stop it. And that's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, if you drink the water that I give you, it, it, it will, you will never be thirsty again. You will always be satisfied and you can't, there's nothing that you can do. Once it's placed inside of you, the, the, the Spirit of God is placed inside of you, it will be a fountain that will well up to eternal life, and nothing can hold it down. Your sin can't hold it down. Your despair can't hold it down. Your doubts won't hold it down. It will continue to well up. There is nothing now that can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That's the best news in all the world. Um, Jesus is offering this woman something as necessary and satisfying to the spiritual body as water is to our physical body. Do you believe that? He offers something that is as necessary and satisfying to the spiritual soul as water is to our physical body. But this woman, of course, you know, she's not quite there yet. Um, and she's still thinking about Jesus, you know, that Jesus is talking about physical water. And so uh, she says, I mean, you got, you're crazy, you don't even have a bucket. How are you going to get me water? Um, and then he says, you know, Trust me, I'll, I'll, you will never be thirsty again. And she says to him, essentially, um, okay, go get me some of that magic water. Uh, you know, it's kind of sarcastic. Give me some of that magic water. I love not to have to keep coming out here every single day, in the hot of the day, heat of the day. Uh, go get me some of that magic water. And so Jesus heats things up and says, okay, uh, go get your husband, and I will. 
And then she mutters, I don't have a husband. And he says, you're right, you don't have a husband. You've had five husbands. And the man that you're sleeping with now is not your husband. So what you just said is true, you don't have a husband. Um, at that moment, you can imagine, the woman it feels like she probably got hit by a freight train, right? Um, Jesus finally revealed not only who he is and his insight and his authority, he also showed this woman who she is. He has shown this woman what she has been worshiping up until this point. He's showing this woman, you are spiritually thirsty, just like every person on the planet, just like every person in this room. We have a spiritual thirst. And this woman, he's telling her, you have been going to this, this well the wells of male relationships and sex to quench that spiritual thirst that is deep inside of you, to quench that thirst for uh, uh, significance and value and purpose. That's the well you've been drinking of, and it's leaving you thirsty. Um, and so she responds. She says, uh, she says, okay, I see that you're a prophet. You're right. You're right. I have been living in sin. And she asks him, she says, okay, I see that you're a prophet and you have insight. And so tell me, what do I do? Where do I go? Where do I go to worship? Where do I go to atone for my sins? We Samaritans think you go up to Mount Gerizim. You Jews think you go to Jerusalem, to that temple. Where do I go that I might find uh, healing, that I might be made right with God? And then Jesus says something, again, all cryptic. He says, there's an hour coming when, uh, when everything's going to change. There will, there's an hour is coming when everything is going to be different. In fact, it's at hand. And then she responds and says, you're right. When the Messiah comes, whew, everything's going to be different. It's going to be great. He'll explain it all to us. When the, that's what she thinks he's talking about. When the, hour, the hour's going to come when everything's going to be different. Everything will be made right. And she says, you're right. When that Messiah comes, and then Jesus looks into the eyes of this woman and says, I am he. Take, take a minute. I know I'm doing some long review from last week. But I've been sitting with this again this week. It's because we're kind of doing part two of, of, the, of this uh, little encounter. And uh, it has just been, um, I'm not a crier. I don't cry. Um, but this is one of those, if you really stop to think about what just happened in this conversation, um, what this is doing in the heart of the woman. Because this woman was made to stare into the deepest, darkest, most painful area of her life. Can you imagine the despair that she must have felt as she sees this prophet who has just laid bare who she is? That despair. And then she makes it, she kind of concludes this conversation by, by making this like longing comment like, you're right, when the Messiah comes, I, I can't wait for the Messiah. When he comes, everything will be made right. And then Jesus, you can just imagine, I just have this, this picture in my mind, this Jesus looking deeply into the eyes of this woman saying, I'm here. It's me. I'm here. I'm making all things new. I've come to make things right. Can you imagine? This woman has gone from the depths of despair to staring into the very eyes of mercy. And it absolutely, utterly changed her. On the spot, absolutely transformed this woman. John tells us that the very moment that Jesus says, he looks at the woman, he says, it's me, I'm here. And again, talk about a freight train hit to that woman. She's found mercy, she's found healing, she's found love for the first time from a man who is not just wanting her for her body. She's found love for who she is. And then it says, right as Jesus makes a statement that the disciples uh, come back with their food. 
Like, Jesus, we, we got it. So what we're going to look at today is what this woman did next and how Jesus has to just slap the disciples upside the head and tell them what just happened. Okay, these fools. All right, so this is, this is what the woman does next. Verse 27, John 4, verse 27. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with the woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Again, this woman has had two revelations in this life-changing encounter. She has seen herself for the first time, and she has seen the truth and grace of Jesus for the first time. And it absolutely transforms her because she goes, she runs into the town and tells everybody, I met this guy. I met this guy out at the well, and he, he told me all the terrible things that I've ever done. He told me the truth. Maybe this is the Christ. He told me all of the terrible things that I've ever done in my life. Maybe this is the Messiah. What a weird, bizarre evangelistic technique, right? Here's a guy who told me the truth. Why was that such a unique experience? I have a theory. I think it's because you and I, not just you, but you and me, you and I are double-faced, um, double, excuse me, double-minded, two-faced, duplicitous people. We're double-minded, we're two-faced, we're duplicitous. That, that's the reality of who we are. For every person that's sitting in here, there's actually two of us. Um, there's the person that we actually are, with our weaknesses and our insecurities and our secrets and our needs and our uh, hopes and our dreams. And then there is this false image that we try to convince people is, is truly who we are. Um, we live in a world uh, where we project these false illusions about uh, who we want people to think we actually are. We, we project these false illusions uh, and, and, and there are these unspoken, mutually agreed upon rules of society that say, if you don't crush my false image, I won't crush yours. So when I said again, how's everybody doing? You're like, good. Bunch of liars. <laughs> we, we have this, again, there's these unspoken rules. You don't crush my false image of myself, I won't break yours. You... We, uh, I'll pretend that you're smart and that you have it all together and that you're holy and that your marriage is great and that your kids aren't driving you crazy and then you do the same to me. We'll be good, right? We'll be good. It's like we've taken roles in a little play. that You play your part and I'm going to play my part. What part do you want to play today? Some of us have gotten so good at propping up that image we can even convince ourselves that this is our true self. And that's when it really gets dangerous. When we convince ourselves that, that our false image is actually our true image. And then one day, as it does, our true self kind of emerges. It kind of comes out the surface, and we just, ex- like, you explode on your kids or something, right? And then, uh, then you, afterwards, you're like, whoa, what was that? Who, I don't even know who that was. What was that? I'll tell you what that was. That was you. That was you. That was your true image. C.S. Lewis says it like this. He says, when I come to my evening prayers, and I try to reckon up the sins of the day, nine times out of ten, the most obvious one is some sin against charity, I have sulked or snapped or sneered or snubbed or stormed. And the excuse that immediately springs to my mind is that the provocation was so sudden and unexpected, I was caught off my guard. I had not time to collect myself. On the other hand, 
surely what a man does when he is taken off his guard is the best evidence for what sort of a man he is. Surely what pops out before the man has time to put on a disguise is the truth. If there are rats in a cellar, you are most likely to see them if you go in very suddenly. But the suddenness does not create the rats, it only prevents them from hiding. In the same way, the suddenness of the provocation does not make me an ill-tempered man. It only shows me what an ill-tempered man I am. The rats are always there in the cellar, but if you go in shouting, they will have taken cover before you switch on the light. You see what he's saying? The surprise of the situation didn't create Lewis's anger. It simply didn't give him time to do something with what was currently in his heart. But we perpetually wear these masks and we try to convince everybody around us that this is actually what we look like. And isn't it exhausting? It's absolutely exhausting. That's why I think this woman is able to run into this town with such joy and freedom and liberation. And she just says, guys, you won't believe it. There's somebody who told the truth. There's somebody who told me the truth about who I really am. Come see him. Maybe he'll tell you the truth too. Maybe he'll tell you all the terrible stuff you did. Come see him. How weird is that? But that's what she does. Now, I'm sure that this woman has had in the past, she has had people who have told her how screwed up she is, right? She's probably gotten called all kinds of names as she's been caught sleeping with other women's husbands. And she's probably gotten called all kinds of names by her husband who she's cheating on, okay? Um, But I, I believe that this is the first time that she has ever heard the combination of truth and love. That's the difference. Truth and love. If someone has pointed out who she was in the past, it was out of judgment and it was out of condemnation. They beat her down. This is what we do. They beat her down to build themselves up. Which, by the way, if you're looking for a way to strengthen that false image, that's, that's my suggestion to you. Play the comparison game. Compare yourself to other people. Look down on others and you'll feel much better about yourself. Um, but that's not how Jesus approached her, did he? Jesus spoke the truth, but he spoke the truth with grace. And when you come face to face with the unadulterated truth and grace of Jesus Christ, nothing will ever be the same. And and again, this is example A. Look at how dynamic and transformational this woman's experience was. Again, before this, she did everything she could to avoid coming into contact with the people of that town. And now she's uh, running towards them. She's looking for them. She's looking for them. She has a brand new self-image, a completely different attitude towards those who had previously been her enemies. I love that she actually drops what's in her hands so that nothing will slow her down as she runs back into town. This woman uses her own story to point people back to Jesus. This is such a great picture of the transformed life. This is what a picture of the transformed life looks like. Jesus said that he is going to put in her a spring that would well up to eternal life. The imagery here is of a fountain that is overflowing. It's overflowing out of her life. That's exactly what's happening. This living water that has been placed inside of her is welling up within her. It's flowing out of her, and now it's beginning to affect others. That's what evangelism is. We get scared of the idea of evangelism, but that's exactly what it is. It's, It's your life with Christ flowing out of you. Robert Munger said, evangelism is the spontaneous overflow of a glad and free heart in Christ Jesus. William Barclay, he's one of my favorite commentators, he said, the Christian life is based on the twin pillars, twin pillars of discovery and communication. No discovery is complete until the desire to share it fills our hearts, first to find, then to tell, 
those are the two great steps of the Christian life. First to find, then to tell. Those are the two great steps of the Christian life. And that's what this passage, the remaining part of this passage is all about. It's about evangelism. The word evangel literally means gospel, which means good news. Good news. So in other words, what this woman is doing is she's gospelizing. She's good newsing. Okay? She's a newsy. She's evangelizing. The, what, what, what is the good news? The news, from, according to this woman, the news is, he told me all of my sin. I'm a sinner. But the good part of it is, Jesus came to take away my sin. That's it. That's very simple. I'm a sinner. Jesus came to take away my sin. Uh, that's the good news. Romans 10, Romans 10 sums it up like this. Paul says, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As Scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's, that's great news, is it not? Um, and what follows, what Paul, after Paul just lays out this fantastic news, he then goes on uh, to give one of the dozens and dozens of calls in the New Testament for Christians to begin to go out and share that good news, just like the Samaritan woman did. Verse 14, How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Now, I know there are a lot of people in our world today um, that have a hard time with the idea of evangelism and, and even the, the idea of conversion. Um, lots of people outside of the church will say, you know, I... Like, you're a Christian, that's cool. Christianity's fine. I don't agree with all of it, but that's fine. You can believe what you want. The one thing I really just don't like about your religion is that you're always trying to convert somebody. You're always trying to convert people. Isn't it pretty narrow-minded for you to believe that your worldview is better than my worldview? That's, That's the response we get often, right? So because of that, many Christians fear that they're going to hear this, and so they choose not to share the good news about Jesus, not to share um, their faith. Um, I've heard it like this, though. Imagine a group of scientists, after years of research, learn that most of the treatments that we use currently for multiple sclerosis, to treat multiple sclerosis, were not only ineffective, but are actually harmful to you. Okay? Uh, The scientists say, okay, our research has shown that these things are bad for you. These things over here, they're bad. This new approach that we've discovered, we're now giving it to you, and it's much, much better for you. Okay? So what do these researchers do? What do these scientists do? They start spreading the word, right? They, they, they share their findings in medical journals. They, they spread it all over the internet. They're on the Today Show. They're all, all over the, they're t- talking about these new discoveries, this new uh, thing that they've uncovered. Now, question is, is that narrow-minded? Because, in, absolutely not. It's, it, it's because what they're doing, do you understand? What they're doing is they're trying to convert you. That's, a, that's what conversion is. They're saying, um, this, this, uh, Stop these things over here because they're not good for you. Instead of these things over here that are bad for you, do these other things. We have discovered some truth that, that you were formerly unaware of. And when you were unaware of this certain truth, you were at a disadvantage. So stop doing these things and do these things over here. That's, that's what they're doing. Is that narrow-minded? Of course not. In fact, what you would say, if these scientists discovered this and they didn't go to the airwaves, and they didn't begin to spread the word, what you would begin to consider is maybe... They're not sure if their, their findings are valid. Maybe they're not sure if their research is true. 
because they haven't begun to publicize it and haven't begun to spread it. There are many Christians today who have never, never once opened their mouth about the good news of Jesus Christ. And friends, I, I, I hope that you didn't step into Christianity because it was relevant or because it was inherited uh, or it was because it was popular or it was because it was uh, you know, exciting, because it was your favorite option on the table. I hope that you stepped into Christianity because it's true. I hope that you became a Christian because it's true. And if it is true, if Jesus is who he says he is, and he truly is the only way to be saved from our human condition, if he is the only way to be saved from our human plight, then for me not to open my mouth and to share who Jesus is with those who don't know him is not open-minded, it's not tolerant, it's not considerate, it's cruel. Is that, not, is that not the truth? Is that not right? Is that not reasonable? If Jesus truly is the way, the truth, and the life, if no one comes to the Father except through him, as he claimed, then for me to not share my faith is not being considerate to those around me. It's being cruel to those around me. Other people will argue that if you try to convert somebody to your worldview, you must feel superior to them. You've got a sense of superiority. You must think that you're better than others. But this flies in the very face of Christianity. This goes against the very essence of what Christianity says. Jesus came saying, we looked at it in chapter 3, that everybody on this planet stands condemned. And that the only way against who the Father is through him. That he comes offering grace that he's going to purchase through his blood. He's going to pay the cost. You don't pay the cost. He comes and he offers grace freely. There's nothing that we can do to acquire it. But he has acquired it for us on our behalf and gives it to those who would receive it. Okay, that's, what, that's, that's the, the, kind of the, at the core of Christianity. Um, how in the world can I feel superior to somebody when I have done nothing to, to, I have done nothing to earn the gift? I have received it freely. If I know anything about the gospel, I cannot walk around spouting off about how good I am. I have to go around spouting off about how good Jesus is. That's what this woman is doing, right? What's her motivation? What's her motivation? Do you think on any level that she's got this sense of superiority among those other, the others in town? Of course not. She's not running in there telling, talking about how good she is or how enlightened she is now or how she's achieved this new intellectual whatever. She's running around talking about how good Jesus is. In fact, what she's doing is she's running into town boasting about her weaknesses in light of Jesus' strength and grace. She's experienced the love of Jesus and is now compelled in that love, to go and share Jesus, even with those who despise her. Let me illustrate this one more way through a, through a story I read this week um, about how the gospel uh, actually came to Korea. Let me read this to you. In 1866, there was an American ship that was going to Korea. This was an incredibly dangerous thing to do because at that time, Korea was absolutely closed to outsiders, and foreigners who came to Korea were to be instantly put to death. There were a bunch of adventurers who were to sail this ship up the Taedong River to Pyongyang. One man had to fight to get on board. The other men didn't want him on the ship. His name was Robert J. Thomas. Robert J. Thomas was a Welsh missionary to China. He had discovered from talking to some Koreans in China that most educated Koreans could read Chinese very well. He began to develop a passion to take the gospel into Korea. Um... He wanted desperately to put Chinese Bibles into the hands of the Koreans. He prayed for years until he found this ship of adventurers and he made it on board. They began up the river, and as expected, there were skirmishes between the adventurers and the Koreans. 
At one point, when they got close to the city, the Koreans lined up with guns on both sides of the river and started shooting at the ship. They tried to find a way to, the land, to land the ship, but they couldn't. By the time they decided to leave, the river had gone down and they got stuck in the rapids. The Koreans sent out little boats full of bonfires and eventually made the ship catch on fire. At that point, the foreigners on the boat realized the jig was up, and they got their swords and their knives and their guns, and they jumped into the water, and they waded ashore, trying to slash and shoot and fight their way out somehow. But not one of them survived. Not one survived. However, the Koreans remember there was this one guy who acted very strangely. He didn't have any weapons with him, and he didn't come out slashing and shooting. Instead, he came to shore with his arm full of strange books, and he started throwing the books to the people as they shot him. Then, as he moved in a little closer, he thrust the books into the hands of the people as they clubbed and stabbed him until he was dead. That was Mr. Thomas, and those were Chinese Bibles. Thirty years later, the first missionaries came. As Korea opened up, a man named Sam Moffat, a Presbyterian missionary, began to preach the word. And one of the very first men who came to one of his classes for new converts had an old Chinese Bible that his father had picked up on a very bloody riverbank 30 years earlier. So let me ask you, what in the world would motivate Robert J. Thomas to do something like that? A sense of superiority? You think he did that because he felt better than them? No, it's love, right? burden, compassion. Paul tells us the love of Christ compels us. The love of Christ compels us. Today, the gospel is growing at four times the speed of the population in Korea. Did you know that? Four times the speed of population growth. There, there are churches lined up and down that river um, that, that, he, that he sailed up. And one of those, by the way, these are strong Bible-teaching churches. There are, there, are, there are churches, and one of those is, is actually called the Thomas Memorial Chapel, named in honor of the man who was so compelled by the love of Jesus that he laid down his life to put the word of God into the hands of the men who were butchering him. On the flip side, you want to know what a sense of superiority looks like. Uh, it looks like 12 disciples who were sent into a town uh, that had no idea who Jesus was, completely dark. And the disciples refused to open their mouths because they thought the Samaritans were inferior heretics. In their minds, the Samaritans were beyond the reach of Jesus. They were beyond hope. The revival, I love this, the revival in Sikar did not come through the chosen trained, experienced disciples. Who did it come through? The woman. The Samaritan female outcast who had been a Christian for literally a matter of 15 minutes. She was a Christian for a matter of minutes. Runs into the town and within an hour has brought back the town in droves to see Jesus. We've got this myth inside our head that, that, we've, that one day, one day, we're going to get all of our stuff together. We're going to look squeaky clean. All of our stuff we put together. And then and only then, God will be able to use me. Then and only then, God will be able to use us. Got this idea that we've got to remedy all of our past sins. We've got to memorize X amount of scriptures. We've got to take all of these different classes. We've got to, we've just got to make ourselves squeaky clean. But we keep, keep thinking about, man, one of these days, whew, I'm going to be useful. One of these days, I'm going to be able to be used. This story flies in the face of all of that thinking, doesn't it? Just destroys that kind of thinking. This woman simply read, this is what the woman has understood so far. I'm a sinner. I need a Messiah, a Savior. I think I just met him. I got to go tell somebody. 
Seriously, that's all she's got so far. I'm a sinner. I need a savior. I think I just met him. I got to go tell someone. I got to go bring somebody with me. As much as we know, we share with others. That needs to be kind of our motto. As much as we know, we share with others. This woman didn't need to have everything figured out and have all the answers to her questions. She simply pointed to her own story and then pointed people to the wonder of Jesus. This woman did what the disciples refused to do. The disciples kept their mouths shut in the town of Sychar, didn't they? But this brand new baby Christian who still has all of this baggage has just run into town and a revival erupts. And by the way, this is how it's been happening for centuries. Um, Michael Green wrote a book called Evangelism in the Early Church. And he pointed out, um, he said that you look at this, this, the explosive growth of the Christian church over the first few centuries. He said this, and I quote, It was in reality accomplished by means of informal missionaries, not by trained pastors or evangelists. The mission of the church was not primarily carried through formal preaching, but informal conversation in homes and wine shops, on walks, and around the market. The mission of the church was not primarily carried through formal preaching, but through informal conversation in homes and wine shops, on walks, and around the market. May I suggest that one of the reasons why we have seen so little fruit in America recently is because by and large we've, we've kind of abandoned this. Um, I'm not, not everybody, I'm not making this, this is kind of a general statement here, but I think by and large, what we've done as, as American church is we have, we've taken this, this the, you know, evangelism and mission, fulfilling the Great Commission, and we've outsourced it. We've outsourced it. We're no longer responsible for fulfilling the Great Commission because we've hired somebody to do it for us. We pay ministry professionals, and as long as we keep throwing our money in the offering week after week to cover their salaries, then we feel free not to participate. Um, we've outsourced it. But that's, that's not the biblical, not even the historical model of what it means to be a Christian. Um, the Bible says that if you have been reconciled to God through Jesus, that you too are now called to be an agent of reconciliation, an ambassador for Jesus Christ. We are not simply called to come here and be consumers. We are now producers. Are you a consumer? Are you a producer? Uh, Hudson Taylor, we say this every week, I think, but Hudson Taylor said, the Great Commission, which is to make disciples, is not an option to be considered, but it's a command to be obeyed. And I know that sounds like a great burden that we're put, we put on our, our shoulders, but look, what Jesus is going to tell us next is something that, it's funny, with, there's these themes that just keep coming up in the Gospel of John. What Jesus is going to tell us is something that's already been said in 10 different times in 10 different ways already in the first four chapters. But he says essentially that for those who embrace this reality of the Christian life, there is great satisfaction to be had. Mission, he's going to tell us, is linked, inextricably linked, with fullness of joy and satisfaction. That's what he says, verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That's absolutely astounding. Because you see what Jesus is saying. He's saying I, he finds fullness and satisfaction from sharing the gospel with this woman. 
By the way, you can get why this woman would be overwhelmed with joy and satisfaction and she'd feel full, right? Because she's just experienced Christ. How amazing is it that Jesus says, wow, that, that, how satisfying is that, that, I, that I've been able to share the gospel with this woman? Isn't that so cool to know that Jesus is, finds satisfaction in saving us? It's not just something that he's willing to do. It's something he wants to do and enjoys doing. I love that. But what Jesus is saying here, he's saying that he is strengthened to do what God has given him to do by doing what God gave him to do. Right? Think about that for a second. Food, right, is our source of energy. That's how we have energy throughout the day. Okay? So Jesus is saying, my source of energy for doing God's will is doing God's will. John Piper says, the very doing of the work of evangelism puts you into such intimate communion with the heart of God that giving becomes getting Feeding becomes eating. And if that's true, if that's not just true for Jesus, if that's true for you and me today, then that makes sense why some of us feel like we're starving. We know we're saved. We don't question that. We know that we're united to Christ. Or we're not united to God through Christ. We're seated with him at the right hand of God in victory, right? We, we get that we're saved. Um, but, but, but sometimes, doesn't it just feel like you're missing something? Have you ever felt that? feels like we're missing something, like, there, like there's got to be something more. Many of us just, you know, keep going to the classes and keep hearing the sermons and keep doing this. We keep feeding, 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 feeding. And we never quite feel full enough or equipped enough or ready enough or satisfied enough to go out and to serve God. But what Jesus is saying here is that doing God's will is going to enable you to do God's will. Do, doing God's will is how you are fed and how you are satisfied. I think, in fact, what Jesus tells his disciples, Jesus tells them, he says, I have food that you don't know about. I, I, in fact, I think he's kind of chastising them. I think he's rebuking them a little bit. He says, you don't know about the food that I'm tasting because, frankly, you've never tasted it. And I think he says that because of the way they just came out of Sikhar. They came out empty-handed. They came out refusing to open their mouths. They refused to, do, uh, to, to, to partake of the food that is to do God's will. A lot of us, too, here... Um, if I'm, 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 I'm raising my hand on this, I'm not pointing the finger at anybody else but me at this point. There are times where I feel weak and malnourished because I, there are times I just say no to living on mission. Anybody? Is anybody else? A lot of us feel weak and malnourished, unsatisfied because we, we're saying no to living on mission. We're saying no to, to placing God's will as our ultimate. For many of us, frankly, if we're honest, be honest now, our biggest mission in life is to make enough money to pay our bills and to maintain our current lifestyle. That's our highest goal in life, is to sustain our current lifestyle, maybe even knock it up a peg or two. That's our highest mission in life. And we wonder why we feel weak and impotent. We wonder why our souls are weak and impotent. Our souls were built for something much more noble than that. Our souls are built for something much more heroic than that. What is your mission in life? What is, is the food that you eat to do God's will and to be an agent of reconciliation? Is your greatest pursuit in life to know Jesus, to obey Jesus, and to share Jesus? Is that what brings you the greatest satisfaction and joy in life? I heard somebody say that the keynote of Jesus' life was to do God's will keynote of Jesus' life was to accomplish God's will. Um, what's, what's, the, what, what's the keynote of your life? I've been asking, what's the keynote of our church's life? What's the keynote of our corporate life? 
C.S. Lewis said, The church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ, to make them little Christs. If they are not doing that, all of the cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermons, even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. God became man for no other purpose. To draw men and women and children to Christ. My prayer is that this church would be filled with Christians who are living on mission, that it would be filled with men, women, and children who are learning to, to be on mission, and that it would be filled with non-Christians. Those three groups. Christians who are on mission, Christians who are learning to be on mission, and then Christians, or excuse me, not non-believers, non-Christians, but people who are asking questions and investigating. What we cannot be, what we cannot be is a church filled with apathetic Christians who refuse to grow, serve, and reach out to the lost in the city. That's what we cannot be. We cannot be a church filled with apathetic Christians who refuse to grow, invest, serve, and reach out to the lost in the city. We won't be that. And we're going to keep, we're, we're going to keep preaching you know, the same thing over and over and over to one another and up here and so on. Um, and, and I know you might, that might be what I just described might be you. You might be sitting in this room and saying, uh, well, I, that's not me. I don't want to invest. I don't want to reach out. I don't want to serve. I don't want to, I, frankly, I don't want to grow. I'm not going to change. I'll just be honest with you and tell you, you probably are not going to be happy here very long. In a sense, I'm just going to kind of release you to, if you, you, may, you may be happier elsewhere. And that's okay. We could use your seat. I'm serious. Um, we need to be a church filled with missionaries, people who are learning to become missionaries and non-Christians. I'm going to get talked to you for that one. Sorry. <laughs> William Booth. Let's, let's, let's quote somebody else for a second. <laughs> William Booth said, While women weep as they do now, I'll fight. While children go hungry as they do now, I will fight. While men go to prison in and out, in and out, as they do now, I'll fight. While there is a drunkard left, while there is a poor lost girl on the street, while there remains one dark soul without the light of God, I will fight. I'll fight to the very end. Our souls were meant for a nobler, more valiant, more meaningful, more satisfying mission than simply trying to maintain our current lifestyles. But what does that even look like? What does, what does evangelism look like in today's world? In 2014 in San Jose, what does it look like? And I'm, I'm, actually, I'm actually asking. Um, I, I'm telling you, like this, I told the guys on Friday morning, this is a really hard message for me to put together because I'm preaching to myself. Because frankly, 98% of the time, I don't care. There's a few, the few 2%, and I make sure to tell you the stories of the 2% here to make it seem like the 100% is there, but it's not. 98% of the time, I don't care, and I want to care. And I, I, my, my, one of the biggest prayers is that God would put in me a love and a burden for this city. That's, why, that's one of the main reasons why we do prayer and share every month is because we go around, and we, one of the main things we pray for is, God, help us to care. Help us to love our neighbors. Help us to care enough that we would open our mouths so we might speak truth. So I'm actually asking you, we only need to take a couple minutes to do this, but um, help me. 
Let's help each other. What are ways, what are ways that we can share? You got in two or three sentences, actually one, two, you can stand up right where you can raise your hand or something and we'll call. In two or three sentences, how do you share the gospel of Jesus Christ with people? Maybe God's even putting something in your mind right now of a way that we can, we can go out and we can share the good news of Jesus Christ with people. Just raise your hand in two or three sentences, tell us.